Well, if you would, please join me in prayer. Father God, we come here into this room knowing that many people are carrying burdens. That, Lord, they are concerned about loved ones that live in the area that was so recently affected by the tornadoes. There are those, Lord, who are dealing with personal issues in their lives, Lord, whether it's financial or relational. And then, Lord, there are those who are feeling the enormous weight of sin upon their shoulders right now. Lord, we ask that in such circumstances that you would send your Holy Spirit to teach us to pray as we ought so that our confidence might be in what the Lord Jesus has already done on our behalf. We pray, Lord, that in the midst of this service, as our eyes are directed towards him, that he might receive all the honor and all the glory. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, this might be one of the strangest Christmas sermons that you've ever heard. Most Christians do not see Psalm 27 as an Advent text. However, within a biblical theology framework, it certainly is. Now, if you missed last Sunday's message, I began this month saying that the anticipation of the first Advent is a model of faith for us as we await the second Advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We examined the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and we saw that each of these Old Testament figures within that passage were looking forward to something greater that God had promised that he would provide. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Each of those Old Testament figures were looking forward to the coming of King Jesus, who was the fulfillment of the promise, the, the guarantee of an assured hope in heaven. And the writer to Hebrews taught that now Jesus has come, we should look forward in faith to what awaits the Christian when we reach heaven or when our Lord comes to claim us as his own. And if you remember, I want us to use this occasion of Christmas to meditate and to dwell upon this connection of waiting in anticipation of faith and our faith in patience. If you're going to be patient for his coming, patient in doing his will until he comes, that implies that you are exercising a faith in something better in the future than you are ex presently experiencing in this moment. Patience, waiting, endurance, persevering, choose whichever one of those words, and they all imply faith. We are not a people who give up as though we have no hope. Our hope is based upon secure evidence of what God has done through Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, all of it demonstrates there is something greater and better that awaits us. So in living anticipation of future glory, how do we build our faith in order to endure? What activities can we do and participate within that grow our faith as we await the Lord's return? That is what we want to explore in these Sundays of Advent. 
We practiced one of these last week when we participated in the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, we saw that Paul instructed the church to Corinth to celebrate the supper as a means of faith and what Christ did on their behalf until he comes again. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as much often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We participate at the Lord's table to strengthen our faith, to nourish our faith spiritually. We are reminding ourselves that his death is sufficient for our sins. He is alive, and he is coming again to take us to where he is. Now, we can also look back at the saints of old and learn from their examples as they awaited the first advent. And that's what I want us to do this morning. With, with the first of these three sermons leading into Christmas Eve, it's my desire that we use the Christmas season in a very practical way to build our faith. And to begin with, I want to speak on probably the most well-known way to build your faith, yet sadly the most neglected. It's the means of faith that we call prayer. I don't think we make enough use of prayer. I don't know how many times, how often, even in my own life, I find myself just right before I go to bed, well, I'll just throw these things out there. Kind of like a wish list for Christmas. Maybe somebody will give it to me, maybe not. I always need to bring my mind back to what the Bible teaches us about coming to meet with the God of the universe. Our example this morning comes from David. Verse 32 of Hebrews 11 spoke specifically of King David as an example. And verse 39 made it clear that despite his shortcomings, David was commended for his faith. Perhaps there's no one else in all of the Old Testament that can teach us about prayer as much as David. And that's mainly due to the fact that we have so many of his prayers in the Psalms. And because they were put to music and they were sung corporately, we know they are intended to be a model for the church at large. So I want us to focus on one psalm in particular, and I'm sure you've already guessed, it's Psalm 27. And the reason I chose this one is it's not only because it shows the heart of another human being, but also that of a king. As king of Israel, David had a vast array of resources available to him. He lived in a palace. He had great wealth. He had mighty warriors that protected him, close friends, special advisors. He could enter into the tabernacle whenever he wanted. He composed and he led praise and worship music. And even though he had all of that, David still resorted to prayer as his greatest asset. Therefore, I want to delve into this psalm by briefly noting the type of person that David was to begin with, and then dissect this psalm by seeing its declaration of faith and the way that it looks forward to the resolution, just as the book of Hebrews taught us, and then David's personal crisis that he is lifting up in the moment and his final instruction to the people of God. So that's David himself, his declaration, his crisis, and his instruction. Most scholars believe that Psalm 27 is a kingship psalm because it has all the hallmarks of a king praying here. Verse 3, he's conducting war and and armies surround him. Verse 4 and 6, he has special access to the tabernacle and able to offer sacrifices. And of course, the psalm is ascribed as belonging to King David in the heading. So let me describe David as a man of prayer. David did not pray because he was an incompetent king. He was incredibly competent and able to lead his people. As a battle chieftain, he was unsurpassed. Even Saul's oldest son, Jonathan, pledged himself to David due to his exemplary leadership. 
After returning from a series of victories over the Philistines, we read in 1 Samuel 18, as they were coming home, when, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. In fact, we are told immediately after that that Saul became immensely jealous due to David's popularity. He resented that the people naturally gravitated towards him due to his charisma and his leadership skills. David didn't have to pray because he was somehow deficient in wisdom and unable to cope with life. He was a natural-born leader in the best sense of that phrase. Nor did David need to pray to God because he wasn't resourceful. Let me provide a couple of occasions where we see examples of this. In 1 Samuel 21, when he was on the run from Saul, he escaped the clutches of a Philistine king, Achish of Gath, by pretending to be insane. He made a living for himself while in that same exile. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, we learn that David and his men earned money by offering security to farmers and shepherds. David was incredibly resourceful. That's not why he prayed. And if you're wondering, well, maybe David had to pray because he was kind of this weak and fearful kind of guy here. You would be wrong. David was a man of action. Even as a teenage boy, he said, no one will fight Goliath. I'll fight him. And he did. David continued to play music to soothe King Saul's soul, even though Saul tried to run him through with a spear. When David had the opportunity to kill Saul while he was hiding in a cave, he, he carefully cut off a piece of the man's clothing while Saul wasn't looking. And then a moment later, approached Saul, trusting in the king's mercy at that moment, showing Saul what he could have done, and yet pledging his loyalty to his king once again. There is no doubt that David was a man of action. And it wasn't because he was a wishy-washy or fearful kind of guy that he needed to pray. No, David knew that before a holy, just, all-powerful God, he was a fallen man and that he was completely dependent upon God. Like all human beings, David needed a relationship with Yahweh. That is why David prayed. That theme comes out all across the Psalms. Psalm 22, 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 51, verses 3 through 4, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David was a sinner, and despite being a great king, David needed his God. Psalm 30, verse 10, Hear, O Lord, be merciful to me, O Lord, be my helper. Psalm 57, 1, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in your soul, in you, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Even though he was a great king, he was confident, he was resourceful, he was a man of action, he was still just a human being. David prayed because he had to pray. He needed his God desperately. So let's take a, pray, a look at the prayer overall here. If you will, turn back to Psalm 27 in your Bibles if you're not there. 
Now, if you were reading this psalm outside of understanding how David was building his faith, you might wonder if David was bipolar here. In the first six verses, he speaks of a great and mighty God who is for him, one who makes him invincible, in whom he can sense being present as he worships, mountaintop experiences. And then in the same exact prayer, verse 7, he expresses a feeling of abandonment by the same God. So much so that some Hebrew scholars want to classify this psalm as a lament. But it's through this lens of faith building that we can see what David is doing with this prayer. He begins by making declarations of what he knows to be true of God. The Lord, note all capital letters, so this is Yahweh, God's covenantal name to his covenant people whom he promised that he would pour out his steadfast, enduring grace, his unending love and mercy. That is who David is addressing here. The Lord is my light and salvation. By light, David is expressing the Lord's countenance and favor upon him by revealing how to live life and which direction he should go. And by salvation, David will be reflecting on the Lord from the Old Testament history as the deliverer of Israel, the savior of his people. And because the Lord leads David in the path, saves him, and holds him secure, he asks two rhetorical questions. Whom should I fear? Whom shall I be afraid? David knows these things to be true by God, about his God, and the Lord holds him fast. He is David's salvation. David says he should fear no one. He goes on to express the same idea in verse 2. Those that intend to do evil to him only end up doing harm to themselves. Perhaps here he is thinking of Goliath when when he came up against a teenage boy. The giant thought, this is going to be an easy victory. And yet he was the one that literally lost his head in the moment. Maybe he was thinking of Saul's relentless pursuit of the faithful David, only to end up committing dishonorable suicide. Or maybe he was thinking of Ahithophel, one of his advisors that had betrayed him to his son Absalom. And Ahithophel took his own life once David was restored. David had seen it again and again. He knew this to be true. And because of the Lord's favor, in verses 3 to 6, he's looking forward to a greater moment of joy that he has experienced somewhat before. He expresses his longings to be in the tabernacle. Now, that might seem like a strange request to us, but at this time, this was the place of the Lord's presence. One was guaranteed to be with God, provided you had a sincere faith and that the Ark of the Covenant was present. In such a time and place, one felt secure, protected, safe, like you were lifted up out of the chaos of the world a mountaintop experience where you sang hymns of joy, willingly offering sacrifices with hands uplifted, lost in the moment, even though you may be surrounded by enemies. Christian, have you ever had one of those moments? Your faith is being tested. You you feel like you may be in a vice in that moment, and yet you find the presence of the Lord there, A, a sweet praise that is on your lips, a goodness of knowing that while the boat may be in the middle of a storm, you know your Savior is in the boat with you. John Payton, a 19th century missionary to the New Hebrides, had such a moment. One night, Payton was being chased by a tribe of cannibals, the very people that he was trying to share the gospel with. And he was forced to climb up a tree in the middle of the night in order to hide from his pursuers. And he wrote about it in his journal. 
I'm going to read it to you. This is a, a quote directly from him. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if they were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharge of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did the Lord draw near to me and speak more soothingly to my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow and I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence to enjoy his consoling fellowship. Now, I've never been chased by cannibals, but I've had such moments in my life where I sweetly felt the presence of my Savior in the midst of overwhelming suffering. It's one of those moments that in your first inclination, you would never wish the circumstances upon another human being That is, unless they get to sense the presence of Jesus in such a moment, too. All of this is found in verses 1 through 6. David knows every bit of what he has declared to be true. God is a light. He is good. He is greater than his enemies. He has felt the very presence of God that has caused him to rejoice. He believes it can happen again. All of that is absolutely true, but that is not his experience at the moment. In fact, he is in a dark place. But the faith he is expressing in these two verses are for a future moment. Notice verse 5. For he will hide me. He will conceal me. He will lift me. Verse 6, he, my head shall be lifted up and I will offer sacrifices. I will sing. He knows he will experience this in the future but he's not feeling it at this particular moment. He's in a crisis of belief, one in which he feels abandoned. And just so you'll know, this isn't the only time that David ever felt this in his life. It wasn't a one-time moment. Just read Psalm 28, and you'll see another one. And here's the request of his prayer in such a moment, that God would listen to him. He feels as though God has not heard him or maybe is ignoring him. Verse 7 Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. From verse 10, most commentators believe that his mother and father have both died at this point, and he cannot turn to them for wisdom. He feels utterly alone. You ever felt like that? You're crying out for the suffering to end, and it doesn't. And you're wondering, God, are you listening? No reply. God, are you there? No answer. God, I know you exist. Did I do something to repulse you? No response. Have you left me? No warm, fuzzy feelings, no still, small voice. All you have is the Bible that's spread out in your hands. And your pain is so great, you can't even read the words through your tears. You ever feel like that? Then listen to David, the man of faith. 
He's expressing himself in such occasion. Hide not your face. Turn me not away. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. David was experiencing those same feelings too. Yet where else does he turn? He knows that his covenant-keeping God has the answer, and his God never lies. God made promises to him, so God know, or David knows he will not let him go. That is why in his heart David is saying, your face, Yahweh, do I seek. He is God's servant. The Lord is the help of his past. He is the God of his salvation. Notice the exclamation mark. Uh, in Hebrew, this is emphatic. And in verse 10, the Lord will take me in. In contrast to his parents who have orphaned him, David is expressing adoption by God. Yahweh, the Lord of the universe, will receive him into his covenant family. He knows that his God, his personal God, has the answer to his dilemma. So look at this remarkable request from David. He feels alone, abandoned. He doesn't understand why. And yet, look what he asked for here in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. David is expressing faith. Lord, use this experience, this, this feeling of loneliness to teach me your ways. I am not going to give up on you. My confidence is in you. I ask as I wait that you would not give me up to my enemies. I, I'm going to trust you right now. Essentially, the prayer is use this circumstance, this occasion to build faith in my life. Teach me through it. Can you pray that? God, this hurts but use this experience for your own glory and teach me about faith in you. I'm not going to give up on you, God. I'm trusting that you got this. Is this not what the apostle James taught in James chapter 1? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Praying such a prayer is the ultimate declaration of faith. It's not wishful thinking. It's not pie-in-the-sky dreaming. It is absolute trust that the Lord has you even when you don't feel his presence in that moment. It is rock-solid belief that the Lord will deliver you even when present circumstances feel bleak. It's the same kind of prayer that Jesus prayed when he said, into your hands I commit my spirit just after he prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so David concludes his prayer by saying here in verse 13, I, I believe I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, this is a curious phrase that David uses. It could be interpreted that he, he believes he'll look upon the goodness of the Lord while he's still alive, before he dies. But I think because he's using God's covenant name, Yahweh, here in these verses, he is referring to the promised land. 
the true inheritance. Could this not be what the book of Hebrews was saying when the author wrote, indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I'm fine with either interpretation, but, but I can see how this fits the latter better. So David has revealed his personal experience. When he was in crisis, he began with this declaration of faith. He declared what he knew about God and how the Lord had been faithful to him in the past. He was looking forward to the relief of his situation, and yet he did not sugarcoat it. He was completely honest with God about his feelings. In that moment, he felt alone. He was hurting. He had enemies that were trying to take advantage of his weakness at that moment. But yet, even though he didn't feel God's presence, he didn't allow his present circumstances to control his faith. That's so key to this. He did not allow his present circumstances to shape or mold his faith away from God. Rather, he asked for his faith to be increased He makes firm declarations of God's goodness once again. And he includes with one final instruction here, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Notice this is an imperative. It's a command. Now, I'm not sure if David is battling the situation in his own heart or if this is the final advice to all of us who are experiencing hardship, but I don't think it matters. The the beauty of the Psalms here is if David were here today giving you counsel about your present circumstances, I think it would be the same exact words for you as he was telling himself. He would say, I I know you want this to end. I know you're ready to take action against it. You may be like me, competent, resourceful, but this is something which you need to wait for God. Don't take matters into your own hands here. Don't turn to sin for comfort in this moment. Don't try to force the issue, but wait. Put your faith in him. Trust that he has you. Allow him to use this moment to strengthen your faith as you look forward to your deliverance. Therefore, David's prayer becomes a means of exercising faith for all of us. So how does this relate to the first advent? How does it connect to this season? Well, remember the writer of the Hebrews said saints like David were looking forward to something better. The Old Testament saints only had the promises of God in the Torah and their past experiences to draw upon. They were not privy to the big picture yet. But remember the writer of the Hebrews began his manuscript by writing, God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the power of his word. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a much more excellent name than they. 
Now that Christ has come, we have something way better than David did. We have Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. We have the complete picture. Jesus didn't just come to rescue us from our sins, but to redeem us from this world, to bring us a new heaven and a new earth, one without sin, one without pain, one without suffering, no more sickness, no more broken systems of justice, no more politics, thank God, because everyone is going to give their allegiance to one king, absolute unity to live exactly as we were created to live perfectly. What we read in Psalm 98 is going to happen perfectly when our Lord returns. And again, Jesus is the first fruits of that. He not only died and paid the sin debt, but he was resurrected proving that there is a life to come. When, when you look at Jesus, you see that all has been done, all that is necessary to secure you. God was faithful to David. He, he brought salvation to David the king just like he did for the rest of us. The coming of Jesus proves that God keeps his word, that he hears our prayers and he answers them. So that longing that's inside of you right now to be done with the pain, to to be done with the grief, to be done with the despair, those faith-building moments that make you pray like David here, hide not your face from me, is only a precursor to make you long for what is coming in Christ Jesus when he returns in glory. Jesus is the proof, the, the evidence to believe in what is unseen, to have assurance for our hope. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not give us all things? When you celebrate that baby in the manger this season, you have proof that God keeps his promises. By his broken body, you have proof that everything needed to reconcile you to a holy God has been accomplished. You belong to him. He has you in his hands, and no one can snatch you out of it. By his shed blood, you have proof that every sin has been atoned for. And you can approach his throne, you can cry out to him as his beloved child, and know that he is listening. And by his glorious resurrection, you have a better hope than this old miserable place. A kingdom is awaiting you. And by his ascension, we know that he is coming again to claim his bride. We have something better than David had. We have Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the reason for faith, the consolation for your soul, the hope of glory. All of it is fulfilled in Christ. Hallelujah and Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our prayer today is make us a people of prayer. Lord, let us Look to what Christ has done, knowing that every sin debt has been paid. All requirements to be able to stand in your presence has been paid by Christ. And that he has placed upon us his righteousness so that we might stand before you. So, Lord, increase our faith in that moment. Help us to look forward to the consolation that is coming when Christ returns again, but knowing that our consolation has already come to secure us for that event. 
Lord, let us look at this season now as a faith-building moment to know you keep your promises, and because you have kept your promises, you are holding us securely even when we go through those difficult circumstances where we feel our faith may fail in those moments. We pray that in the darkness, Lord, we pray that in the despair, Lord, we would see your hand saying, I got you, I got you, I got you, I have you because my son, Jesus, secured your place before me. May our hope rest in that alone. We pray this in the finished work of Christ. Amen.